Most people who deny the doctrine of eternal security have not really thought that through. They're not in their conscience mind calling God weak, a liar, and a sinner. But in essence, theologically, that's precisely what they are doing. Our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that all who come to Him, without a single solitary exception, will be raised up on the last day. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been teaching on the doctrine of eternal security, and today he will conclude his sermon entitled, Our Great Salvation. Please join us in the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 as we continue. What was it? that allowed the Apostle Paul to have such a perspective. He lived with eternity in mind. He took the heartache of this life and he put it out there in light of the eternal glory to come. He's already said here in Romans 8.18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider, the King James says, I reckon. It's a mathematical term. He's already used it in Romans the sixth chapter. It was a bookkeeping term where you put to one's account, you add up all these, you add up all these. And Paul says, when I add up the glories to come, anything I can go through in this life is at best momentary light affliction. They don't even compare with the glory that is yet to be revealed. That's a big biblical axiom. You can count on it, you can stand on it. You can cross perils off your list of something that can separate you from Christ's love. Let's keep reading verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, if you read the list carefully and if you know the life of the apostle Paul through his epistles, in the book of Acts, he had already experienced every one of these seven things except the last one, the sword. But he will experience that in a matter of months after Nero takes his head off. Missiologists predict that every year some 600 to 700,000 believers worldwide meet death through the sword. But what did Jesus tell us? Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both bodies, both soul and body in hell. So you can mark sword off the list. Paul's comprehensive statement is clear. Not anyone nor anything can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no difficulty that you can think of that can change the unfaltering, unchanging, eternal, everlasting love that God has for you. And so to prove this, just to remind us, he quotes Psalm 44 here in verse 36. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, if you know Psalm 44, then you know it depicts the persecution and hatred of pagan Gentiles against the Hebrew people. And they, the Hebrew people, were being derided. 
They were made a laughing stock. They were being hated. But the psalmist is reminding us that God was there through all of it. Though he had not yet experienced death, it was like death could come at any time. That's how much they were hated. Paul spoke of that, how he carried about in his own body this concept of death. For your sake, meaning because of our love for you, O God, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're serving you, but look what they're doing to us. And Paul can take this verse, and he can apply it not only to himself, but to the Romans who are about to come under the Neronian persecutions where through his sadistic, wicked ways, Nero will take the believers and make them literal living torches dipped in oil to light his gardens. Those of us who have never had to suffer physical persecution would do well to take verses 35 to 39 and write out in the margin Hebrews 11, 35 to 39 and put those two passages together. There in Hebrews 11, we find a list of unnamed people who were tortured, who were jeered, who were flogged, who were chained, who were stoned, and some, yes, even sawn in half. And when we see the price that our brothers and sisters in Christ have paid in generations past and are paying now today in the world, there's no room for a shallow, complacent, apathetic walk for Jesus Christ. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. So not pain, not misery, not loss of life can ever separate us from the love of God. And so with a shout of victory comes verse 37. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, when you think of an animal that's victorious, you don't typically think of a sheep. You might think of a lion or a cobra or an elephant or an eagle, something mightier, but certainly not sheep. I mean, sheep seem to be defenseless. They don't seem to stand a chance. But please notice in verse 37 that the victory is not in the strength of the sheep, they're in the strength of the shepherd. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. King David in Psalm 23 reminded us that it's not a matter of how weak you are. The critical is how strong your shepherd is. And that's why he is quoting here this great psalm, if you know it. Do you see the words, we overwhelmingly conquer? That's one word in the Greek New Testament. We overwhelmingly conquer. The King James and the ESV render it, we are more than conquerors. Now, it's an interesting word. It's the it's compound word, hupernakomen. Hooper, we get our word hyper from it. Usually when we think of the word hyper, we think of it in a negative realm. You know, some nine-year-old who's undisciplined and out of control, hyped up on video games and calmed down on some drug they give them. But in Greek, it carries a much different perspective. It's not negative, it's positive. In fact, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, translates it super, and that's not bad. You could translate it super terrific, super fantastic, super wonderful. 
The second half of the word is nakao, and it means victory. And it comes into English. We pronounce it Nike. We have a, a company called Nike that produces tennis rackets and shoes and caps and all this paraphernalia. It means victory. We love it when our team wins. We don't like it when they lose. But Paul is speaking here of victory. Now, he uses this word nikao, victory, in another place in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in nikao, in victory. John the Apostle uses it in 1 John 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory, nikao, that has overcome the world. But when Paul uses the word nikao, it's not enough to use it alone. This is the only place in all of Scripture where it is attached to this prefix hooper, hooper nikao, hyper nikao, we might say. We overwhelmingly conquer. We are more than conquerors. Another translation says we are more than victorious. Another translation says we have complete victory. The eternal security of the believer is a super victorious kind of truth. And to prove that, he now brings us to the pinnacle of his argument. Don't miss it. Pay attention. Remember, he began this section in verse 28 with our eternal security, and we know, and he ends it here in verse 39 with, I am convinced. And God inspires him with these words, I am convinced, to use a perfect tense. A perfect tense describes something that is done and completed in the past and will forever have implications that never change. It's used of the resurrection of Christ. He, in the past, has resurrected, and he will forever be resurrected. And so Paul is saying here, I am forever convinced in my mind. There is a deep, settled, unalterable truth that is reverberating in my heart. And so he asks a series of seven questions, whether anything is able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now, in verses 38 and 39, if you look in your Bible, he lists a series of 10 items. Please notice that he lists four contrasting pairs along with two items that stand on their own, in order to prove that nothing can separate us from his love. Notice what he's convinced of. He lists these items, for I am convinced, or I am persuaded, or I am sure, depending on your translation, that neither death. Death is feared by so many people because they've never found God's forgiveness. They grieve like those who have no hope. They do not have in their heart the promise of heaven. I was in the Northeast earlier in the week, and I asked the lady waiting on us. She was, I said, are, you're from Egypt? I said, are you a Muslim or are you Coptic? She said, I'm a Coptic Christian. Do you have the assurance that if you die in the next 10 seconds, that heaven is your home? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? The little boy, Philo, said, I'm not sure, maybe 50. And mom said, I'd like to be sure. There are many people who have no assurance over what happens at death because they've never really fully experienced the forgiveness of God. 
But Paul is saying, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that death does not separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, in Philippians 4 and in 2 Corinthians 5, he reminds us that death brings us closer to the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He said, I'm betwixt between, I'm a rock in a hard place. I don't know what's better for you, Philippians. If I stay here in the body, I can serve you and bless you with the gifts God has given me as an apostle. But I prefer to depart and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is absolutely persuaded. He is absolutely sure that death is not a separator from, for the believer. In fact, it's the great unifier because you're present with the Lord. And that's what I preached at my mom's funeral this past week. Death only draws you closer to the presence of the Lord. It's a change of address. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher of God in the 1950s. He spent eight years preaching the book of Romans. And then, unexpectedly, his wife left him in death. Now, by the way, he was a pillar of conservatism to be a Presbyterian. He was a dispensationalist. He believed there was a future for Israel. He was premillennial. He believed that the promises of the coming literal kingdom, that our, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, would come true. He would never be received in Reformed pulpits today. But when his wife died and they were leaving the graveyard, all the kids were in tears and they came up to a red light. And there was this large truck that just cast a shadow over their car. And immediately God provoked Barnhouse with an illustration. And he said to the children, all crying in the back, would you rather be run over by a truck or run over by the shadow of a truck? They said, well, that's easy, Daddy. We'd rather be run over by the shadow of a truck because the shadow cannot hurt you. And he said, and I quote, children, your mother has not been hurt by death. She has just gone through the valley of the shadow of death. Death cannot hurt us. It is only a shadow as we travel into heaven's door. Hey, that's a great truth to ponder. I'm convinced that neither death nor life. Now he moves past the crisis of death into the calamities of life. You mean there's nothing in life that can separate me from this? Paul would say, I'm convinced, absolutely nothing. Put out in the margin, would you, John 10, uh, excuse me, John 6, 37 to 40. I meant to have these slides in there. I left them out uh, by accident, Steve. But John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said. Circle in your mind, all, all that the Father gives me. Remember, he speaks of those who are called and those who are glorified. An unbroken chain. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Marvelous. What's the will of the Father who sent you? This is the will of him who sent me. 
that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, without exception, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is an irrefutable promise to everyone who will come to Jesus. He came to earth not to do his will, but to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that every single person, none excluded, that have come to Jesus will absolutely be raised up on the last day. For Jesus not to raise up someone on the last day is not to do the Father's will, but He didn't come to disobey the will of the Father. He came to obey the will of the Father. Listen, to say that you can lose your salvation is really to call the Lord Jesus a liar. And I'm not prepared to do that. Not only is it to call him a liar, it's to call him a sinner, because then he would have disobeyed the Father's will. And not only is it to call him a liar and a sinner, it is to call him weak. To teach that you can lose your salvation, it's to say that Christ is incapable of doing what the Father has called Him to do. Now, I don't think most people understand me. I'm trying not to be cruel here, but most people who deny the doctrine of eternal security have not really thought that through. They're not in their conscience mind calling God weak, a liar, and a sinner. But in essence, theologically, that's precisely what they are doing. Our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that all who come to Him, without a single solitary exception, will be raised up on the last day. Now look at the second contrastive pair, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, certainly not angels, and I'm sure He feels compelled to mention angels because there was so much weird theology in his day as there are in our day. You go into the bookstores, the few that are left, and there's like a whole half a aisle on angels, and most of it is pure garbage. And sadly, many of the rabbis in that day taught many inaccurate things about angels. They said there was an angel for everything. The winds had an angel. The clouds, the snow, the hail, every blade of grass had an angel. Everything was associated with an angel. Add to that, there was a common belief that maybe angels would rebel against God because they were somewhat ticked off that they were made lower than man. And of course, if you've taken my course on angelology, we know that those holy angels will never fall, that they are eternally secure. The testing period is over, just as the believer is eternally secure. And so angels, they're not against us. The Bible pictures them as God's servants for us. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Yes, they are. Angels are God's servant for us who are saved. By the way, that word inherit is an important word in the Greek New Testament. It refers to something that is received as a gift, not something that is earned. That's what the nature of an inheritance is. Salvation is not earned. It is inherited. It is the gift of God called eternal life. And so when someone dies, 
Even the angels of God are still serving them. They're ushered into the presence of the Lord, Luke 16 teaches, by God's holy angels. And when Jesus comes back, Jude reminds us that myriads and myriads, millions upon millions of angels will come back with him. Listen, angels cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Read further into verse 38. Nor angels, nor principalities. This is a word that's used to describe fallen angels. It's the opposite in the contrasting pair to holy angels. Principalities, the Greek word arche. It's used in Ephesians and in Colossians to describe the demonic world. Can demons who can harass Christians, can demons who can sometimes confuse Christians separate us from the love of Christ? No, they cannot. You say, well, how do you know? Are you sure? Because at the cross, Paul wrote, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The cross of the Lord Jesus incapacitated and disabled all of the rebellious fallen demons. And so John can write, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than even he, the evil one, Satan, the chief of all fallen angels. Who is in the world? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so principalities cannot separate you. Look at the next couplet. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Don't wander. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nothing in the present world can separate you, nor things to come. Again, he's got all bases covered here. There's nothing in the present, nothing in the future that can arise and erase God's unfailing eternal love for you. How about powers, dunamis? It's a slightly different word. It's used of Simon the magician, people, humans with supernatural powers. Could they possibly separate us? No, they cannot, not at all. There's no unbeliever who can curse you, who can cast a spell, who can bewitch you with his sorcery, anything like it. So Paul says no powers have any control over the believer. Look further, nor height, nor depth will be able to separate you from the love of God. These Greek words for height and for depth are spatial words, and he's really keen off of Psalm 139, what King David said. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. I can't flee from the presence of God. Neither height nor depth can separate us. As high as you go up and as low as you go down, nothing can separate you, nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath. There is none who can oppose us, nothing that can ever stop God's love. Now let that sink in, verse 38 again. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth and just in case I miss something nor any other created thing and that includes you because you were created. There is nothing exists that was not created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you can name something not covered in these categories, you come up to me after this service and I'll give you (laughs) $1,000. 
But don't waste your breath because it covers everything in the universe. That's security. He that began a good work in you will absolutely complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And if you will come to the Lord Jesus, he will receive you. And when you come to him, he will secure you. You don't have to hope for some reincarnation. You don't have to try to earn your way to some third heaven. You don't have to work your way out of some purgatory. No, Christ is he who died, who is raised, who is seated, who is ascended, who is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And there's nothing that can separate you from his great love. Now, Father, may we be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that we might be filled to the fullness of God. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, listen, one day, the roll will be called up yonder. He will count all of his sheep. He will call them all by name. And not one will be missing. Everyone born again of the Spirit will be able to say, present and accounted for, Lord Jesus. I know when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I'm wondering if you will. You can be, but you have to be willing to humble yourself. You have to be willing to own your sin as evil, whether it's adultery or fornication or drunkenness or transgenderism or homosexuality or self-righteousness, whatever it is, you have to be willing to call it sin that God can forgive it and truly change it. Our Father, we thank you that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, on the basis of your death and resurrection, save me and change me. Thank you that the grace that has appeared is not licensed for evil, but it teaches us, it instructs us who are saved by it to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to want to live holy, to please you, to love you, to obey you with all our hearts. Help us in this new day and in this new week to reflect the Lord Jesus to his honor and glory. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. We must remember that moral purity is often lost with the choices we make with our own eyes. And second, God can forgive sin, but he does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. Tomorrow, we will begin a new six-part series on biblical morality. Dr. Brogy's first sermon in that series is entitled, Avoiding Moral Failure. If you enjoyed today's message and would like to have your own copy, Remember that you can order a CD or DVD by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478.
and requesting program Our Great Salvation 021. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures. Search the scriptures.